0: Welcome and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 as we look at verses 31 through 39 in part 1 of Pastor Josh Lagrange's sermon titled, What Wondrous Love Is This? Romans chapter 8, and we are ready for the passage of 31 to 39. We're going to back ourselves up to verse 1 when we read here in just a bit in order to get some more of the context. We've been um, asking for a great deal of prayer for Jim Hickey. Um, That's Logan's dad, if you haven't uh, been able to kind of catch what's going on there. Um, Logan and Elizabeth, who have left for Scotland, so... Uh, The last diagnosis that we just keep hearing is that uh, it it does not appear uh, that he is going to make it. uh, We were told at one point um, numbers of something like 10% uh, chance of survival uh, at one point. Um, Now, our God is sovereign. He's able to save. He's able to heal. He's able to deliver regardless of what doctors say. If doctors give a 0% chance, this means nothing to him. He does as he pleases. Um so we're going to continue to pray. We do not know what he will do, but one of the big things I also want to ask is that you'll pray for Logan and Elizabeth and the family as well, as this um is obviously um, just a, a great deal of grief, a great weight um, on them. And we, we've been talking about it a bit, but you, you, you have to realize when somebody steps forward for gospel ministry, when people step forward for the work of missions the spiritual warfare that begins is, can, can just be crushing. And he means to try to torment them and bring them to despair. So we want to pray that um, God would give hope, God would give peace, that Satan would not be able to do this. And, and, and this is actually precisely the exact truths we're looking at this morning as we look at the hope that we have in God's word and these gospel promises. So in Romans 8... What happens in 31 to 39 is that this is a high point in the book. We've been mentioning that chapter 8 is just the glory of the Bible in terms of our joy, our hope, our strength. I mean, this is just the highlight. Well, verses 31 to 39 is the crescendo of the crescendo. Um, It is this place in the text where uh, hope and joy rises to the highest place. I want to ask you to do something that will just be incredibly beneficial to your soul uh, sometime on your own. Uh, Back all the way up to to chapter one, verse one and and read all the way through uh, to to the end of chapter eight. It it doesn't take that long. It takes about 45 minutes uh, to read even out loud there. And to do that and what you'll sense happening as you read, as this, you know, detailed and logical argument is being laid, there is a, there is a building and growing of the hope and the joy of what is being communicated to the point that when you come to 31 to 39, it it is as if the text itself sings, sings of the glory uh, that is in this passage. So I, in order to help us uh, get a sense of the weight and the beauty of the passage, I'm going to back us up to to verse one again, just to kind of briefly uh, remind you of what's happening there throughout this book. We have been shown the glory of the gospel. Christian, you were dead. You were dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins, but God but God gave his son Jesus came to be crucified, to bleed, to die a death of ransom, then to be raised in verses one through four there of chapter eight, there is a reminder of our justification. So is there, there is some rehashing of the foundation of what God has done. And then in the next few verses, there uh, comes this discussion of the nature of those who are in Christ versus the nature of those who are outside of Christ. Those who are outside of Christ, their nature. Nature, is that they are hostile to God, but for you who are in Christ, you have the Spirit. And then chapter 8 preaches more of these truths of what God is doing in us, these precious promises leading up to 28 to 30, where there is this just great celebration of an overview that God has called and justified and He glorifies His people. And then this leads to 31 to 39, a great celebration of the glory of these truths. So start back with me in verse one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh and those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the Spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son... or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, uh, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we beg for you to come and give that grace that we need. Give us light, O God. Eyes to see. Ears, ears that hear, but not just passing through. God, I beg. We, we, we're all weak. We can all be bored. We can all be thinking and distracted of other things. I, I beg, oh God, that you give us time right here where every every soul is held captive that our attention is held captive that our affections would be held captive and that you would raise worship and encouragement and joy and hope and trust and peace o oh god go to war against all of our sin as well the father show us the glory of these truths lord what is in this passage is so wonderful It it seems overwhelming. I don't have the ability to preach these things with the glory that they're worthy of, but I ask, oh God, do do what we cannot. And I pray that everyone here, everyone under my voice, that we will come away with a right sense of the weight of glory that is here. How sweet, how wonderful the promises are that we have in the gospel because you are our father. So Lord, please send help. Please give grace. Help me to preach in a way that's useful. Help us to hear and worship. And we ask these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. One of the great works of literature from history was written by a man in the sixth century named Boethius. Um, He probably sounds familiar because I've used him in illustrations in the past. Boethius was a Christian statesman, theologian, uh, and philosopher. He got caught up in some political turmoil, just, you know, ugly politics or nothing new. Uh, Got caught up in some ugly politics back in his day in the 500s. And his opponents made a false accusation against him and actually got him arrested and locked in a tower. Locked in a tower alone. He, He would actually eventually be executed for this false accusation and when he was locked in this tower, he was brought to just utter misery. His heart sank to just the, those bottom pits of depression. He was angry about the, just the the maddening injustice of it all. He was wallowing in self-pity and just all of this darkness. But after a long process of time, of thinking and meditating through the truths and the promises of the gospel, he came, he came to peace. He came to contentment. He actually came to a point that he was able to rejoice in the Lord. And he was so moved by, by how the gospel had healed uh, the sadness, the grief, the depression of his soul that he, he wanted others. He wanted to be able to, to share this with others. And so he wrote a book that's, you notice that's kind of a theme in Christian history. Like just some of the greatest works of history have come from dungeons, prisons, and towers uh, like this, like Paul's letters of the New Testament, uh, Bunyan's work of Pilgrim's Progress, which we make mention of. And then this work, which is called the Consolation of Philosophy. And similar to Bunyan, Boethius wrote a work of fiction. You know, sometimes that that is just the most powerful way to communicate some truths, a work of fiction that brings you along with a great story. And so his fictional story goes, this is what he kind of imagined, That while he was locked in the tower, a woman came to him. A woman appeared named Lady Philosophy. He's kind of drawing on that imagery from Proverbs, you know, wisdom calls in the streets. Wisdom is personified as a woman who gives the invitation, come and get wisdom, get truth. So Lady Philosophy kind of represents truth, theology, wisdom, the truth of the word of God. So Lady Philosophy shows up and... She asks him, what's wrong? Why are you in such grief? Well, he goes on to bemoan all of the injustice that's happened to him. the, The miseries of this condition. Here I am locked in this tower and I'm awaiting my execution. And she responds, indeed, how far from your native land you are. And yet you haven't been expelled. You've simply strayed away. If you prefer to think of yourself as banished, then you should realize you've banished yourself. For in your case, such a banishment is something only you could do, not someone else. If you would just remember what country you are from. Now that's good. That's helpful. It's not the best part. She goes on to say, I, w- I want to apply the right remedy here. So I want to ask you some questions to kind of diagnose what's sick in your heart so that we can apply the right medicine. So she asked him four questions. The first one is the most significant. She asks do you suppose that this is a world ruled by random chance events or do you believe that God is using perfect reason and rules and governs it? Well, he responds, well, of course, I believe God governs these things. She looks at him kind of strangely and says, I I really don't know why you're sick. Now, now already there's a point. The truth that the God who saved us, the, the God who has adopted us and is for us, if he is the one governing all circumstances, there is a peace, there is a comfort that is brought already there. So that's why she says, I don't don't even know why you're sick. There, There must be a failure to connect something here. She goes on to ask him some more questions. Secondly, do you believe that God governs this world by the use of means that he is producing works in the earth that he is bringing about circumstances He responds, well, well, yeah, sure. Thirdly, do you remember? Now that's a critical word. It's a word that's going to be significant as we talk today. Do you remember the end for which all things were created and all things are moving? Okay, getting to this first question of the catechism that we often refer to, what is the chief end of man? It is all moving for the glory of God. And then fourthly, do, do you remember what you are? Do you remember who you are? And he gives an inadequate answer to some of these last ones, sort of like an, uh, Osher, oh, sure, kind of the right intellectual answer, but obviously showing that he doesn't make the connection. And so she responds, now I know why you're sick. You no longer remember what you are. You have forgotten. And the rest of the book is just elaborating on the answers to these four questions. Now those four questions and the answers there, we know the answers to them. We teach them to our children in this church. Our, our, our grade school age children in this church can intellectually grasp the answer to those questions. But, but this is the point and this is why I tell the story. Truths which are easy to intellectually grasp on a surface level must be applied. They must be deeply applied before they will produce in us those intended effects. Boethius came to rejoice in the Lord while locked in a tower waiting for his execution. And Christian, in eight chapters, we have learned truths that make angels swoon. We we have learned truths. Truths that have inspired believers to be able to sing hymns weeping with joy while walking into the Colosseum where they would be devoured by lions. But just because these truths... Have done that to some Christians and that it is God's intended effect does not mean it has automatically happened in our hearts. There is a difference between the 12-ish inches from the brain to the heart where we intellectually understand things to then they are applied and believed believed, not just on that surface level, because if you're a Christian, yeah, we believe these things. It's, it's, it's wild, isn't it? How sometimes we can believe and know the answer that God cares for me. He cares for the sparrows. I'm worth more than the sparrows, but at the same time, be just filled with anxiety and can't sleep from worry. And there's a failure to believe all the way. There's a failure to apply Look, Christian, it's not automatic that when we learn truths of the Bible that it will be applied to produce what God intends it to. You can have the balm in your possession, but if you do not apply it to your wounds, it does not bring healing. Simply owning the remedy doesn't heal. The remedy has to be administered. It is the case many times that we Christians will learn truths we acquire possession of them. But the fact of the matter is the application is the hardest part. You know, so in the preaching and teaching that happens in the church, we, we, we work hard to try to uh, communicate the truths so that we can understand them. And then, you know, we, we try to go down this, this road of helping to apply. But you do understand this is something that I or Pastor Ben or whoever's teaching Sunday school or whatever, we can't do for you. The application has to come in ourselves. The rest of the work is is left to us to finish. And it is the part that is often skipped. It's the hardest part. The hardest part is personally applying the truths. Verses 31 to 39 here is meant for application. It is meant to apply the the, the balm of gospel truths to the wounds of anxiety and worry. It is meant to produce trust and hope for, for hope to rise, for there to be rejoicing in the Lord, for there to be contentment and faithfulness and worship and zeal. Verses 31 to 39 have been called by some a hymn of security. Uh, Now, I I don't believe that it was actually um, sung as a hymn by the early church. We do have some of those recorded in the New Testament, by the way, Um, some just actual lines that the New Testament would, a New Testament church would sing. I I don't believe that's what this is, but I do believe that this is one of those sections that as Paul was writing, he worshiped deeply um, as he wrote this. Now, remember, um, Paul dictated this letter. So a lot of times whenever I'm talking about the Holy Spirit inspiring the the pen of Paul, that pen of Paul thing, that's kind of a figure of speech, okay, not the... Inspiration of the Holy Spirit part, okay? That's literal, but the pen of Paul, that's kind of a figure of speech because at least this letter, there are some others we suspect that Paul spoke it and then there was someone who wrote down what he uh, wrote in this letter. Paul mentions him, it's a man named Tertius who recorded Paul's words. And I imagine that when Paul got to this section, the spirit moved him to exult in these truths That tears flowed down his cheeks as he closed his eyes and he said, what is in this passage? What then shall we say to these things? The text is structured with Paul opening with seven questions. So verses 31 to 35 there, you'll notice seven questions. Some of those questions uh, are rhetorical. Some of those questions he'll give a brief answer to. Some of those questions he answers with another question. We'll kind of see how he does that there. And then he preaches, elaborates on more of the glory of the truths revealed in those seven questions in verses 36 to 39. So looking at it as a whole, I see four major truths that form the content of these nine verses. So there's more, there are more truths there but all of them support these four major truths. Let me show them to you. The first is this. God is for us. Therefore, no one can hurt us. You see that in verses 31 and 32. Secondly, no one can condemn you if God has justified you. Verses 33 and 34. Number three. Nothing can separate you from the love of God because Christ has bought you. Verses 35, 36, 38, and 39. And then number four, because of this, because of all of these things, we are more than conquerors. And we see that in verse 37. So we're going to take our time, uh, work through this passage. Today, we're going to meditate on the first of these major truths. So here it is. God is for us. Therefore, no one can hurt us. Where we begin, we must, absolutely must begin with the distinction about who this passage is meant for. If you back up again to chapter eight, verse one, again, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, This passage, these promises, these wonderful truths are for those who are in Christ. That is biblical language. The Bible is clear about how to become In Christ, you must be saved. Come receive Jesus by faith. Turn and believe. Trust in Christ, call on his name and you will be saved. If you are not in Christ, if you have never turned to him in this way, you have to understand that these promises are not for you. They could be yours even by the time you leave here today. That is my prayer for you. If you have never turned, but for you, sons and daughters of God who are in Christ, verse 31, what then shall we say? These things. This is one of the rhetorical questions of the passage. It's a way of praising the glory of the truths we've just spent eight chapters studying. The sense of it is just almost like, what can we even say? What, What God has done is so amazing. How can we even respond? You know, Christian, if God would let you see hell for just five seconds and then get a glimpse of heaven for just five seconds we would never be the same We would never be the same nothing else would matter I mean we would just have this sense of who cares if I even eat again like God saved me the realization that this is everything this is everything what do we even say in light of the glory of what God has done to deliver our soul from the worst fate possible into this glory that he's bringing us? How do we even respond? Well, we're going to spend eternity trying and we begin now. What then shall we say to these things? Here's the second question. If God is for us, who is against us? You notice that first phrase there, if God is for us. It's been made crystal clear in this letter that if you are in Christ, God is for you. And what that means is that all of God's thoughts, all of God's actions, all of God's desires are only for your benefit and never for your harm. Every thought, every action, every di- desire is only for your benefit and never for your harm. We always have to make clear when we say this, God's every action, thought, desire is always for our everlasting benefit and never for our ultimate harm. His actions will bring temporary pain. We have to know this because there are times in our life, there are times believer. When we are experiencing difficulties and we're thinking to ourselves, God, this is hurting me. This is, this is harming me. This is, this is pulling me away. This is breaking me down. This is not good for me. And we have to remember that in Christ, it is working for our good. We trust him that even when it physically hurts, it is working for our everlasting good. There are a lot of times in the midst of peril, we don't see how it is to our benefit. And that is why we need the word of God. And you have, we, we have to get this in our heads. God intends this. is part of the point of this age, part of the point of this age. We have to trust him because what's in front of our eyes doesn't look like the truth that he reveals in the word. Outside of Christ, there is only judgment. But in Christ, there is only blessing. God has committed. God has sworn and God has taken an oath in his own name to be faithful to you in Christ to be faithful, to always work for your benefit. You know, again, the idea that someone could lose their salvation is just such a contradiction of all of the truths of this passage, not just the verses that specifically address it. God has sworn to be faithful, to work for your good believer. When David was living a life on the run, We're reading 1 Samuel, we'll come there pretty shortly where Saul is trying to slit David's throat and day after day, David will just narrowly escape. There are even times where David just barely makes it around a corner of a mountain as Saul is approaching and this would have created a tremendous weight of anxiety. David had to go find caves to go sleep in because his enemies were hunting him, even in the dark, sleeping out in the wilderness, always just one step ahead of Saul. You can imagine that it would bring you to a place of misery if your happiness were rooted in the things of the earth. But what we see over and over again, like the very Psalm that we read as the call to worship this morning, Many of the Psalms are expressions of worship where David was being moved by the Holy Spirit to come to a place of peace. And I'm so glad God did this, move David to write these Psalms of worship where we are being led to worship by seeing the worship of David. And like him saying, in the midst of great anxiety, My soul is brought to a place of peace, like a baby being held in the arms of his mother. Uh, Psalm 56 is one of those, if you'll flip over there with me. Psalm 56, uh, uh, one of the Psalms where David is in great peril, great turmoil. Psalm 56, start in verse one. Let's read read some of the verses that are in this passage. And I want you to notice the connection between Psalm 56 and Romans 8 that's happening here. So verse one, be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? You really need to consider the question that he asked there. He asked it rhetorically, but we need to give some answers to think through it. What can man do to me? Because the answer is, well, physically on the earth, an awful lot. What can man do to me? Are you kidding Man can send me in an awful lot of pain, torture, man can hurt. But the point in Psalm 56, David's point, and then the point that comes in Romans eight is this, compared to what God can do, what man can do is stubble in the hand. What God can do to punish in hell The agony that is coming on all of those who refuse to trust in him is going to make what man can do look like a joke and what God can do to save and give joy. What God can do for his people, the glory that we will be brought to, we will look back on the absolute worst of our earthly pains and we will call it nothing. We will think things like, why did I get so upset about that? Why did I fret about money? Why did I care about some piddly little Caesar who could cut my head off? That's nothing compared to this we will see that compared to both the punishment and the glory of God, what man can do is nothing. What man can do the worst, get get it in your head, the worst. The New Testament calls light, momentary affliction, which that would be enough. The verse could have stopped right there and be powerful. But if the verse continues on, which is creating in us a great weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Listen to me. The worst pain you will ever endure on this life, it is light. It is light compared to the agony of hell and compared to the glory that is in Christ. And it is momentary. It is momentary. We will one day understand with a kind of fullness what eternal misery would look like. And we will understand the things we fretted about so much on this earth. They were just fleeting. It was just so fast. And, and I mean that there, there are some who suffer with a decades long battles of cancer, which just brings hurt and pain to their bodies. We will still call it Light. In Psalm 56, keep reading, uh, start in verse eight there. And let's read some more. You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? David's point is that because God is with him and God is for him I will not fear I will not fear because God is sovereign then that means that whatever comes to me is his will so so christian realize man can do a lot to you there are forces of pain that can come Nothing will happen unless it has been granted by your father. Christian, do you you realize that every single second that you have been breathing from the day you were justified, from the day that God brought you from death to life, demons have wanted to murder you. And God has not allowed them. Demons have wanted to torment you in 10,000 different ways. And God has forbid them. What does come into our lives? Those ways of sifting that pain that has come through. It has come through a filter. And the filter is the hands of our father. What the pain that comes is pain that he has allowed. And so our God has the ability to stop The, the difficulties from coming, you know, a a large part of what worry is, is oftentimes borrowing things, borrowing fear from that things that have not even happened. and might not even happen. Right. Okay. So there are some things to that, 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 you know, are happening and that creates worry. And then there are times like nothing has even happened yet. We're just imagining stuff. We're just imagining things that could happen. What we have to preach to ourselves is, okay, not not one ounce of this difficulty is coming to me unless my father who loves me and is for me allows it to happen so he can stop Thousands upon thousands of these things. And if it comes, then the Bible says that he means it for our good. That even this pain is for me and for my benefit. And therefore, David says, I will not fear. I will not fear. Now guys, this is tough stuff. This, this is not easy. We can sit here right now not in pain, I mean, maybe some of you do have great weights of anxiety of things going on in your life and so this, you're, you're trying to apply this right now. But for many, it, it may be that you're in a season where things are fine circumstantially right now. It's easy to sit here not in pain and think with that prideful bravado, you know, kind of like Peter, I'll never deny you, even if I, gotta, even if I have to die And we can arrogantly think it'll be easy. We can arrogantly think things like, well, you know, I'll just, I'll just trust God and it'll just, well, that is the answer, but let's not pretend that it is easy. And on the other hand, we are not to think that it's impossible because sometimes that's a temptation, Sometimes there's the temptation to be like, well, yeah, well, Paul, yeah, he was Superman. Okay. Yeah. So he could look at the chopping block and and rejoice and sing because he's Paul or or David or something like this. We are, we are not to think that it is impossible. Uh, Have you ever heard somebody say of a command of the Bible? Well, that's just not realistic. Okay. No, God expects this. This is where God intends to bring us. So there are dangers on both sides where on one hand, we're not to think it will be easy. And on the other hand, we're not to discount it as it's not actually what God expects. No, this is where God intends to bring us. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. Therefore we will not fear though the earth should change. And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, this is meant by God. These truths are meant to deflate Our fear to to drain, to pull the plug on the drain of worry and anxiety. And it is meant to produce real and lasting peace. God is sovereign. God governs all things. He has stopped an untold number of attacks against you. And what God does allow is filtered through the hands of his fatherly love. And so when the difficulty comes, these are the things we have to rehearse. These are the truths we have to remember and preach to ourselves. He is my father. He cares for me. Everything he works is for me. He is in control. He governs every single circumstance. He ordained this. He means this for my good. He will give the help that I need. All of this. We have to rehearse these truths within ourselves. If God is for us, who is against us? if God is for us, who is against us? Let's, let's, try to, let's try to answer the question to fill in the blanks. The answer is, tons of people can be against you, but here's the point. None of them matter. They don't matter. And, and I don't mean that they're, you know, you know, don't have value as made in the image of God, but what it means is this. Their significance next to the infinite significance of God, they're nothing. But we have to regard God in that way. We have, to re- we have to fear him supremely and not fear the opinions of wicked men. This was Jesus's point when he told us, do not fear those who are merely able to kill the body. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, wh- what's his point there? Man can hurt your body, but not a hair of your head will perish. Remember when he said that? They will kill you, but not a hair of your head will perish. So he means that not a hair of your head will perish part in that ultimate and definitive way. Man can kill the body, but only if God allows it. But God is the one who is able to destroy body and soul The point is that we are to regard God as the one with infinite significance. On the last day, who determines your worth and your eternity? On the last day, who gets to say the evaluation of who you are? The mean girls at the gossiping table? The ones who snicker as you walk past? No, it is your creator. It is the one, the the fact that God is the ultimate judge means his is the only opinion that matters. That's the only opinion that matters. If God is for you, who can be against you? The answer is nobody that matters. What it means, Christian, Christian, you cannot be hurt. You cannot be hurt. If you are in Christ, there is no person and there is no circumstance that can ultimately and definitively harm you. Not a hair of your head will perish in that ultimate sense because who who could do it? People, they have nothing. People can only touch you if God allows it. And if they do, if they harm you, what does the Bible say? Your reward in heaven just got greater. They just served you. Your enemies just became your servant. Pain, pain, can pain hurt you? I know that sounds an odd way to word it. So let me, let me say it like this. Can pain ultimately harm you? Again, the answer is, No, it gives temporary difficulty to to the body, but the Bible shows God is using pain to toughen and purify and refine his people. You are becoming more useful by going through the pain that you do and your reward in heaven is greater. Pain is your servant. Pain is your servant. What about Satan himself, Satan and demons? Again, same thing. They can only touch you when God gives permission. And it must be so frustrating for Satan because every time he wants to ruin God's people, he only works to cleanse them because yeah, we may fall to sin. We we fall to temptation, But as Micah says, though I fall, I will rise again. And when God brings us to repentance, we are cleansed even further from where we came. Christian, you can't be hurt. You cannot be definitively harmed. There was actually one Christian uh, who was arrested for preaching the gospel. He was being tortured and questioned. And he said to his captors, you are only instruments in the hands of my father for good. You are not able to touch me unless my father grants you permission. You are not even able to breathe unless my father grants you life. If you harm me, you have only made my eternal reward greater and so you serve me. If you kill me, then everyone will hear that I died for this message. And all of those tapes that are spread about. People will think, there must be something to this message since he sprinkled it with his blood. And so they will listen to my tapes more intensively than they ever have and more people will be saved because of it. His captors didn't know what to do. His captors didn't know how to respond. They let him go. Now we like it when stories work out like that. That's not always the way that it goes, but that is a believer that came to understand in Christ, you can't be Hurt, not in the ultimate and definitive way. But here's what we have to do. This truth that I cannot be hurt ultimately has to affect me temporally. Here's what I mean. When we're not remembering these truths like Boethius, we can be locked in a tower and our joy disappears our peace be robbed, our trust and security just be gone. And so what has happened is eternally we have not been harmed, but temporally, we are living with lack of peace and lack of joy and lack of contentment. And so what can happen is by believing and applying the truth that I cannot be hurt eternally, it can mean that I don't lose my peace and we don't lose our joy and our contentment in the temporal sense If God is for us, then who is against us is meant to be a battle cry of joy for the Christian. If God is for us, then who is against us? It is meant to be a statement that stirs courage. Because if we cannot be hurt and you have no fear of what man can do to you, what could you accomplish? What risk would you take? What sacrifices would you be willing to make if you believed that I cannot be ultimately hurt? You are immortal until the instant that your father chooses for you to pass from this earth. You cannot be touched. No one can ultimately harm us and no one can take our joy unless we let them. Third question that he asked here. In verse 32, you notice, let's let's read it, go back to Romans 8 there. Let's read it in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? You notice that this third question is an answer to the second question. How can a question be an answer to another question? Well, we do this. We we do this as part of speech. Uh, Moms, have you ever been asked by one of your kids, mom, do I have to go to school today? And you say something like, Is it a school day? Okay, well, your question is so obvious, okay, you're answering their question. The question is asked, if God is for us, then who is against us? Well, verse 32 is the answer. Verse 32 is the answer. God didn't spare his own son. If he did that, will he not give us all the other graces that we need as well? Will he not freely give us all these smaller kinds of graces that we need? You know, small things like the ability to have courage in the face of the lion who's coming to eat you because let's be honest, compared to the grace that God gave in Christ, that is nothing. It is nothing. God will give grace to keep you, for you to stand, for you to persevere, God will supply you with every grace that you need. He will not forget you. He will not neglect you. He will not withhold the grace that you need. If God did the enormously big thing of sending his son, do you think he's going to forget to give you grace to be able to live tomorrow? So that's, that's, that's some of the sense here. It is the, the argument of understanding the lesser things compared to the big one. You know, sometimes men make great professions of their love to their beloved. A man might say to the woman that he loves, I would cross a desert barefoot for you, baby. L- let's just say that one time it actually happened. Let's let's say, let's say, that there was a man, and to get to his beloved, he had to walk across a vast desert, he had to do it barefoot, he comes to the other side, they fall in their arms, cue the dramatic music, it's all beautiful and lovely. But then let's say about a week later, she goes, you know, I, I just, it just doesn't seem like you really wanna be with me. <laughs> He'd probably be like, you remember the whole desert thing? Okay, the point is, if he gave such a great sacrifice, then this has demonstrated something. He, he's willing to do lesser things in a greater way. If God gave his son, can we even begin to imagine the agony of the father watching his beloved son bear the weight of sin Can we even begin to imagine the torment of the father watching the vile, wicked creatures hurling insults at his son? If he did that, Christian, he will give you grace. Christian, he is not going to forget you. Who is against us? What, What person, what harm can come to you? Do you think the father... Who let his son bleed for you will let that blood become ineffective. Do you think he will let you fall away? The father who watched his son bleed and the blood of Jesus was precious to the father. Do you think he will let that blood become wasted? It will not be wasted. He will keep you. Christian, if Satan ever tempts you to doubt God's acceptance, God's love, God's commitment to your good, because that's one we can have a hang up on. Remember that he did something far greater than cross the desert. He sent his son. Sometimes we as Christians, we can be secure about the fact that I will be saved in the end. But sometimes in the moment, the quick little thought will come in. I'm just not sure that God's really working for my good. We got to die to those thoughts. We have to remember and rehearse the truths. Now, what is the effect? What is the effect that God means for this to produce in us? L- l- we've already done some application, but I wanna I want finish up with a couple more points of application. This passage is meant to do things. This passage is meant for application. It is meant to help our hearts rise, to rise in trust and hope It's meant to help our hearts exult. God means that by the time we have read this passage and we have finished that we would be rejoicing and that if we have trust and hope and peace, those things are able to produce even higher virtues like a resoluteness, a sense of security. God means it to produce confidence. Now, not that wicked kind that we're always talking about, self-confidence. There is a confidence that comes with knowing I'm a son of God and he is for me in everything. That brings a confidence and your father wants you to live with that sense of, I can't be hurt. I am immortal until he decides for, for his plan. God means it to produce zeal. Zeal. Zeal is what? What? The foundations of these virtues will produce when our hearts are set on fire by enthusiasm for these things. He wants us to rejoice in the Lord. It is a Christian necessity to learn to rejoice in pain. Now that was a really significant statement. I'm encouraging you to write that one down. It is a Christian necessity to learn to rejoice In pain, and and I realize that you could be sitting there thinking, "Well, why all this talking about pain stuff? Why are we talking so much about torture and and misery and things?" If if verses thirty one and thirty two are so happy, you do need to see that the text is. Jump down to verse thirty six. This is the context. By the way, if you're ever having a a conversation with somebody who believes the prosperity gospel, there's quite a few places you can turn them to. Might I suggest verse thirty six? For your sake, this is, this is believers speaking to God. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Let's get rid of all that trash about if God loves me and I'm his son, then he's going to cause lottery tickets to blow in front of my path while I'm walking down the sidewalk. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Christians, we got to have the right expectations about life. The prosperity gospel, one of the horrible things that it does is produce this, this kind of thinking that I expect life to go neatly and orderly. No, sheep to be slaughtered. But do you see how God is glorifying his name even greater in this way? Like you do understand God could have written this history. God God could make our, our lives go nice and orderly in this earth if he wanted to. But do you understand that by us suffering and then we join Job and we fall on our knees and we bless the name of God, do you realize what victory God gets in demonstrating his glory to the demons? Look what my people do. Look at how beautiful my glory is. My people will rejoice in me even in pain. And God's glory is demonstrated. It is a Christian necessity to learn to rejoice. In pain. The entire theme of the book of Philippians is this right here. Numerous times in that book, the whole theme of the letter, we've we've said this before. Paul is in prison, scars on his back from the whipping that he just took, and the theme of the letter is rejoice in the Lord, because the hope we have in him is so great. But you notice that rejoicing is not very fashionable right now, right? Right now, in this strange Day that we live, I'm sure we're not the first in history. I'm sure there's been others where this weirdness and ridiculousness was there as well. But what is fashionable right now in our culture is oppression. Um, always in a competition to try to outdo other people to make sure that I'm the most oppressed of out of everybody. What is fashionable right now is complaining and grumbling. Uh, America's pastime is uh, no longer baseball. It's grumbling. It's fighting for competition of who's the most impressed. And it, I mean, as if it were a parody, some absurd Saturday night live skit. We literally had royalty in this last week. We actually had royalty get on national television to complain about how oppressed they are. I mean, this sounds like a joke, but it's real and i and i know listen i'm not just like trying to rail against an easy target here okay like my point is not just to like rail against something political my point is to show you know, the Bible is relevant for every age. The, the same, uh, you know, the ideologies going on in the world, they're the same trash. It's just getting recycled over and over again jealousy and envy. Wokeness is just a rejection of joy. It is a rejection of joy and contentment. It is a rejection of where God has placed us. And the answer is the answers are still the truths of the scriptures. One day I asked my daughters how their day was and who'd you sit by at lunch and what'd you talk about? And one of my daughters rolled her eyes and goes, every single girl at the lunch table, all they ever do every day is complain about how terrible their lives are. She said she was the only one who didn't hate my life. This is, it is a culture of grumbling and complaining. Now we're affected by that. What's happening in the culture we live, it always affects us, okay? Because we live here. We're we're rubbing shoulders with this. How different it would be if Christians would rejoice in the Lord. How we, we would shine as a light amidst that backdrop of grumbling if we would rejoice in the Lord. So Christian, we must learn to. We must learn to rejoice in pain, And these gospel truths are the foundations that enable us to do that. So when earthly tragedy hits, what do we do? Here's the second part of the application. We must remember. We must remember. A major part of the Christian life is the life of the inner man. Major part of the Christian life is what's happening internally. It is fighting against the lust and the flesh, the jealousy, the envy, the pride, the anger, the lust. And then it is fighting so that what grows inside of us is trust and hope and love and zeal being lived in the soul. The life of the inner man is a major part of the Christian life. It's not all of it, but it is a major part. And here's how it works. God means for his truths to go to war internally. We learn the truths of scripture and it attacks my jealousy, it attacks my envy, it attacks my discontented heart that thinks I deserve better than this. You deserve hell, the scripture says, and it goes to war against these beliefs of the heart. And so we are to be growing in these virtues, this fruit of the spirit, and, and these truths here, these gospel truths, if God is for us, then who is against us? This is meant to go to war inside of us. It's m- meant to go to war against our anxiety, against our fear, And it's meant to to deflate and pull the plug or that drain. And then for hope to rise, trust to rise, peace to rise. And this bringing the rejoicing. But this is the hard, hard work of application. And guys, this is is how we have to read the Bible. We have to read the Bible in a way that this is what we're doing as we're encountering the the word of God. This is what you got to do when you're hearing preaching. Someday I'm going to preach a sermon on how to hear a sermon, like how to listen to a sermon. That is a biblical text, by the way. Okay. Jesus gave it there because... All the things that should be, you should be sweated wet by the time you leave here on Sunday mornings, okay? And not just because we can't control the temperature, okay? You should be sweated wet because of all of the internal wrestling that's happening of fighting with my lust, my pride, my, my aggravate, all of this that's going on and fighting to come and trust. That's the work of taking individual truths of the Bible and applying them. We all have thoughts in our hearts. They're wrong and we like them. We like them. I deserve better than this. We like those thoughts. Our pride preaches to us. You should be getting better than this. It is not fair that he over there is getting a better life than you, and we have to go to war. We have to go to war against these wicked thoughts and bring hope to rise. Christian counseling, okay? Which is to say the only counseling that's ever gonna do anything Christian counseling. Here is what the substance of it is. First of all, to counsel somebody who is outside of Christ is to tell them, look, nothing is ever going to be okay until you belong to Christ. Because you might feel better here, but you will spend 10,000 years in hell and then eternity is only beginning. But to you who are in Christ, Christian counseling is helping unpack the Wrong ways of thinking of the heart. So someone has anxiety, guilt, depression. It is to draw these thoughts out. Like what's bringing the anxiety? I'm I'm afraid the economy is gonna crash and I'm gonna lose all my savings so I can't sleep at night. And then it is to apply the remedy. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that God governs all things by his grace? Do you believe that God is for you, working all things for your good? Do you believe that God provides for the sparrows and there's not a sparrow that falls apart from his will and that you are worth much more than that? Do you believe that God, you you see the point here, it is applying the remedies that is here. So earthly tragedy hits. What do we do? How do we come to peace? We must remember Rehearse, convince ourselves, preach these truths until we believe them. You may have to take a walk by yourself, go to the lake, or for you, talk with somebody that's going to help you think through these truths and take specific promises of God and apply them. There is a time to read less and think more to apply individual truths. This is some of the help of, you know, when we sing hymns on Sunday mornings, it's the hope that all throughout the week, you're singing those hymns through the week. You know what that does? It's preaching those truths in your heart. The Lord has promised good to me. He will my shield and portion be. Christian, consider if God is for us, then who is against us? And to you who are not in Christ, God in the Bible says that for all of those who are outside of him, you are against him and he is against you. And so you might be loved by everybody around you. The whole world might adore you, but if God is against you, all of your fans cannot give you eternal life. Your popularity will mean nothing in hell. Believe and bow the knee to Christ and God will be for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, while distractions are going on behind us, I ask God that you will come and minister these truths to us. Bring us, oh God, we pray to believe. Bring us, O God, to be transformed by these truths. I just pray, God, that we will not leave here with these things left on the surface for the devil's birds to come and pluck them away, cause them to take root, cause us to believe. And Lord, build our, build trust, build peace, build joy and zeal inside of us, O God. And Father, we lift up Jim Hickey to you. And again, we ask, O God, please spare his life We are thankful that he has trusted Christ and that he is safe in you. But we ask, oh God, that you will spare the family, spare Logan and Elizabeth and Garrett and Abigail and Samuel from the sorrow. Father, whatever you choose to do, we bless your name. We know you will supply what is needed. Please give grace. Lord, please bless us as we leave. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.